This world, our families, our lives are broken and messy. What if Jesus could take our failures, our pride, doubts, rebellion, shame? What if Jesus could accomplish something we never imagined? What if he could take our messes and create something astounding? Something meaningful, life-changing, beautiful. Something the world has never seen before. Don't you bow and pray with me. God, our Father, we are grateful to gather as the church this morning and at our uh, other places of worship, and we're, we're grateful that you have promised us your presence and your power, your goodness, your grace to be upon us when we gather in the name of your Son, Jesus. God, as I've interacted already with some of the dear folks here, Lord, some of us are coming in uh, really hurting, and, and Lord, our, our mess is present uh, Lord, maybe others of us have come in and we seem to be doing just fine. God, no matter where we might be this morning, would you meet us now, we pray in your word. And God, we pray that as we talk about a subject that many of us think we are already familiar with, God, may, as Lewis said so well, may you surprise us with joy. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. So the uh, last time I spoke to you on love, and it wasn't too long ago, I uh, began by apologizing, telling you that I'm sorry to be speaking on love once again. It seems that I quite often speak on the topic of love and even its bedfellow, Grace. Uh, but if you remember, I then quickly added in this previous message that it's not really my fault. In other words, don't shoot the messenger. I'm uh, The reason that I have to revisit this topic so often is because this book seems to bring it up so often. And that when you look closely at what God and even Jesus have said in history, they talked about this subject uh, over and over again. And because I am a Bible teacher, first and foremost, who talks about God and Jesus and declares what the Bible lays out, I find myself coming back often to this topic of love. And so today, as we make our way through John 13 in this series that we've entitled A Beautiful Mess, chronicling Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we once again get to the topic of love. Why? Because once again, Jesus brings it up. But I gotta tell you, something changed in me this week during my study that I think will forever change me. It really did, and it changed so much that I gotta tell you right up front today, I am done apologizing talking about love. Some of you have been waiting for me to do that for a while. But I don't think, as long as God has me here on this earth, that I will ever apologize again for talking to you about love, even if we just talked about it the week before. And here's why. As I did a rather in-depth study this week on the words of Jesus that we're gonna look at here in just a minute, some things jumped off the page. God used Jesus' words to speak to my mind and my heart in fresh ways. And I've been a Christian for over 35 years, and I was taken aback by some keen insights and renewed vision on what God's love can do in the midst of your and mine mess. 
Uh, D.A. Carson was one of my professors in seminary, and he once said that the gospel of Jesus is shallow enough for a baby to play in, but deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. And I think he's right. And God's love follows suit. God's love is the kind of thing where if you're a brand new Christian here today or just starting out or even a seeker, we obviously have something for you as we turn to Jesus' words in a minute. But if you've been a believer like me for a long time, here's the good news. We have something for you. And that there's some new and keen insights that God might just have for you as he did for me this week when it comes to this thing called his love. So let's read what Jesus says. Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples before his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. We call it the Last Supper. And if you've been with us in this series, you know that the action is ping-ponging back and forth between things like forgiveness and then betrayal and then last week, glory. That's why we're calling this a beautiful mess. And now, Jesus moves on to his fourth topic. Let's read about it. John chapter 13, verses 33 to 35, just three verses. Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, here's what hit me this week as I spent some time parked in front of these words of Jesus here, and that is that there is a profound and revealing parallelism going on here which centers around this thrice-repeated command of Jesus to love. And here is the parallelism. I'll put it up here on the monitor so that you can see it in black and white. Uh, Jesus says a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. All will know that you are my disciples, love one another. Some of you are giving, nodding your head, you get it. There's a, a parallelism going on here. Three times the command to love one another, but when you look closely, each one is preceded by something that's different from the other, meaning Jesus is centering on this theme of you and I loving each other, but then he's telling us no less than three things about love that he wants us to know that's a game changer when it comes to yours and mine understanding and application of it. And this is, in a nutshell, what he's doing here in these three verses, or really two verses by the time you get to verse 34. And that is that he's giving us love's place, he's giving us love's precedent, and he's giving us love's power. This is what hit me this week as I parked my life in front of Jesus' words here. Love's place, love's precedent, and love's power. First, notice with me love's place. Jesus says in verse 34a, now let's go on to the verse here. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, I've asked you guys to wrestle with this before, but let's wrestle with it big time right now. When Jesus says that this command to love is a new commandment, uh, what precisely does he mean by this? Because if we push back just a little bit, and I think God understands that it's okay to do so, especially if we're trying to understand what Jesus means here, if we push back just a little bit, this command to love 
from a Judeo-Christian perspective, especially given the Old Testament, is not new. In fact, for thousands of years before the time of Jesus, recorded in the Old Testament is the command to love. If you don't believe me, look at Leviticus 19, verse 18, contained in the law here. God is speaking. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So, so it's all over the place. In fact, I looked it up this week. The word love appears some 360 plus times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. That's a lot of occurrences of love. And it's all over the Old Testament. So what does Jesus mean, I ask you again, when he comes along and says, a new commandment I give you, and they're all waiting with bated breath, love one another. <laughs> you know, some of the commentators kind of wrestle with this, and they, they get fancy with the uh, word new here, new commandment. It's the Greek word kainos. And some commentators or Bible experts argue that, that what Jesus means here is not new in the sense of new, like new in the sense of recent or different, but new in the sense of not worn or refreshed. Give me a head nod that you understand the difference. So they argue that he doesn't really mean like it's a new commandment, because we've all heard this before, but he's just kind of restating it in fresh ways. That's what some suggest. There's only one problem with that, is that I'm no fool. I looked up every occurrence of the Greek word kainos in the New Testament this week, and I looked at the context of every one of the occurrences. There's 42 of them, and I couldn't find one in which the word kainos means refreshed or renewed. Not at all. I mean, you be the judge. It first appears in Matthew 9, 17, where Jesus says, you guys, some of you remember this, don't put new wine into old wineskins. Remember Jesus saying that? I don't think he meant don't put refreshed wine into old wineskins. I think he meant new wine. And then it tells us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, again using this word kainos, that Jesus was laid when he died in a new tomb. And again, I think Matthew meant a new tomb, not a refreshed tomb. They didn't spruce the thing up. No, it was a new tomb. Matthew means that nobody else had been laid in. And Mark, Mark uses the word kainos, and he says that someday uh, believers will speak in new tongues. I know that freaks some of you out. I'm not going down that road. New tongues. But I can tell you this, it means new tongues. They weren't learning German with Rosetta Stone or anything like that. It was new tongues. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, it references, again, using this word kainos, the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. Again, it ain't a refreshed covenant. It's a new covenant. So again, I won't go on and on. There's 42 examples here, but every one of them says that new means new. So once again, I ask you, what does Jesus mean by a new commandment? I think it's a really important thing to understand. And here's my understanding of it. In addition to adding a new qualitative aspect to love that we're gonna to get to in just a minute, that's gonna be point two, what Jesus is also doing here is finally elevating love to its rightful place. That's why I call it love's place. He's putting love in the top position of what God is all about. And some of you are saying, well, wasn't that also operative in the Old Testament? Yes and no. You guys got to remember, the, the Old Testament is described by the New as a shadow of the things to come, 
right? The Old Testament contains truth that is veiled at that time that Jesus came along to reveal in kind of black and white or technicolor for us. And love functions similarly. Look what Jesus would do with this idea of love. When a scribe came to Jesus and said, which is the great commandment in the law, trying to get Jesus to summarize everything down to maybe a couple of things, Jesus does it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember Leviticus 19.18. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Whoa. So Jesus is essentially saying, you got 400 some odd commands in the Old Testament. It can get kind of confusing and they're all over the map on the things that God wants you to do. Let me boil it down for you. Love, loving God and loving your neighbor is the heart of it all. He's giving love its rightful place. Simply put, he's telling us it's what matters most. Let me rock your world. More than faith, more than truth, more than service, more than ecstatic experiences, more than obedience. Love matters more than anything. And I wanna be clear, it's not that these other things don't matter, of course they do. It's just that love is the ultimate goal. Love is the end product that God is after. Love is now in its rightful place with the revealing of Jesus. So don't miss this point, gang. We're gonna shift into second gear here in just a second. Jesus is not giving us here some renewed or fresh call to love. Man, don't see it like that. You, and some people are tempted to say, you know what, everybody talks about love, and Jesus did too. And he, he's doing something very different with love here. He is elevating it in God's economy to an entirely new place, first place, in a way the Old Testament never made clear. If you don't believe me, look at how Paul would say it in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He says so, say this word with me, now, not back then, now in the church age, faith, hope, and love abide or remain, these three, but the greatest of these is, say it with me, love. You guys get it. Now, um, as we make our way to the second key thing, that Jesus does here with God's love, because man, we're just getting started. I wanna tell you a story of something that happened to me this week. Uh, my wife, Kim, is already in Michigan where she's waiting for me to come join her for my time away of writing and rest. And uh, so I'll be leaving this afternoon, Lord willing, after I preach to uh, head out to Michigan. And so I've been a bachelor all week, and, 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 and only maybe some of you men will understand it, it's a really nice week when that happens to me. <laughs> And it's not that I don't miss my wife. I miss her terribly. We talk three or four times a day. But there's just something about the freedom that's nice. And, and so my daughters and everybody, you know, want to say, hey, you know, you want us to come over? I'm like, no, I do not want you to come over. And, and, I, and I don't want Neil to come over. And I want you to, I, I want to be alone. And, and one of the things that I did this week is I got to watch uh, some shows that Kim doesn't like. Not bad shows, but you know, just like any marriage, there's things that she likes and there's things that I like. And because you know you love each other, you don't usually try to demand your way. And so this week, I got to watch one of my favorite shows from the past. Anybody recognize this show? Yeah, I knew you guys would. You know, last night's a younger crowd. They're going, "What? No, we don't know that." That is like, 
Doesn't look like modern family to me. Well, back in 1973, when this actual show was on, uh, this was the modern family. It's called All in the Family, and uh, it's our Archie, who's just this crotchety, bigoted uh, old man, and then Gloria, his daughter, who's married to Mike. He, Archie calls him Meathead, and and then there's Edith, who's kind of a ditz, and 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 this show is all about the dynamics of this family. You know, Kim goes, "Why do you like that show?" You know, and part of it is is because it reminds me of the world I grew up in, and how <laughs> thankful I am it's now different. And. Uh, so I was watching an episode of All in the Family, and on this particular episode, uh, Archie is having an argument with his neighbor. And the argument's over religion. I thought that was incredibly timely for me to be watching this. And Archie is a Protestant, not a very good one, mind you, and his neighbor uh, is a Catholic. And the reason they're having the argument is that the neighbor had been talking up Catholicism with Edith, and she was kind of interested in the Catholic faith. And Archie said, no, we're Protestants. And at one point, all four of these people are in the same room with the neighbor, and, and uh, the neighbor says to Archie, you know, um, it's really all about love. I, I mean, that's what binds us all together. We might have differences among religions, but you love and I love, and that's really all that matters, Archie. And right at that moment, Mike chimes in, and Mike says, yeah, Archie, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in God, but I love, and that binds us all together. And Archie says something snarky, and they move on to the next scene. You know, as I thought about that, I thought that is precisely the way that our modern world thinks, from 1973 and even today. You hear it all the time in the world that you live in. Love is all that really matters. And as long as we love each other and have love, then it's all cool. And though, as we've seen, it is good to elevate love to its rightful place. I mean, Jesus does that. What you need to know about that line of thinking is that our world is a bit off when it comes to their take on love as they think about it that way. Because what Jesus is going to do next is talk about the kind of love that he is after and what a different kind of love it really is. I call this love's precedent. You'll see why in a minute. Love's precedent. And in a nutshell, here is what Jesus is saying. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, I know they say that quite often, dial into this. Jesus gives us this, this idea. He says, only those who have experienced Jesus' love can love like him. And it doesn't mean that, that Mike's uh, experience of love as an atheist on the show All in the Family is wrong or bad. Of course it's not. It's just different. And Jesus came to give us an experience of God's love that he says only when you've experienced that can you then love others with the same love of which he has loved you. Again, if you don't believe me, Jesus couldn't have been more clear. John 13, 34b, he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In other words, in the exact same way that I have loved you, that has allowed you to be saved and allowed you to be my disciple, you now, as a church, as a community of faith, love each other. 
And there's two things about this love contained in the text here that you're not going to want to miss. The first thing is that Jesus is using the word agape here. Many Christians know that word. The word agape in the Greek for love means unconditional, unmerited love. It's the kind of love in which you can love your enemy with. You, just, you accept and love people no matter what they have done for you. Eros love in the Greek is romantic love. That's between a spouse or, or a boyfriend and girlfriend. And, 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 and phileo love is friendship love. It's the love you have at the bar with somebody that you enjoy a drink with or that you have affinity with. But, but agape love is very, very different. It's an unconditional love, and that's the kind of love that Jesus commands of his followers. And the second thing is it's love, that kind of love that drove, drove Jesus to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he has affinity with you. Do you all understand that? He didn't go to the cross because he's romantically attached to you. Do you understand that? He went to the cross because he loves you with an unconditional love, an agape-style love, in which he said, even though your sin is a stench in the nostrils of God, I'm gonna go to the cross anyways to bear your sin upon myself. That's the kind of love that Jesus is after. Please see, gang, we're gonna move on here in just a second. It's a different kind of love that he has loved us with. Very different that you will find today in popular culture or even back then between a Protestant, a Catholic, and an atheist. It's a very different kind of love that he expects from you and me as his followers. As I said before, I call it love of another kind. Larry Crabb, my mentor, calls it a different kind of happiness. <laughs> no matter what you call it, Jesus is after something different here. Now, let's move on to this question. Once we understand that, what is this love like? Let's get down to brass tacks here. What precisely are the markers of this love? What is it, what it, is it known by? And how is it shown? How can we recognize it when we see it in another brother or sister? And though the answer is kind of long and complicated to this, let me just wet your whistle by giving you two overriding markers of Jesus-like love that, man, I'll tell you, if you can start to get and apply to your life because Jesus has loved you this way, you'll be off to the races. First is that agape love is consistently other-centered and it is crazy sacrificial. I, I wanted the alliteration of C's here. It's consistently other-centered and crazy sacrificial. First, notice with me that love is consistently other-centered. You know, again, I, I try so hard not to judge people and, and Christians and all that, but one of the things, I guess maybe it's just because I'm a pastor that I'm very aware of when I talk to people is how often people talk about themselves. Have you ever noticed that? Again, I don't want to make you kind of like me there, but, but I'll be talking to somebody and, and probably almost every conversation uh, somebody will say, you know, hey, pastor, how you doing? And I'll say, you know, well, I'm doing okay, but you know, the, the, the allergies, the air quality is really just affecting me. And you know what somebody almost always says to that? Yeah, you know, I, I've been having the same thing. And you know, I, I feel the same way. And you know, yesterday I couldn't really breathe. And before I know it, I'm going, I, th I thought we were talking about me. <laughs> and, and again, I, I want to be really clear to you guys, I don't have a need to talk about me, but I do have a need for you guys to be other-centered. I'm stunned at how often 
We're not. Uh, John Maxwell said something really funny the other day. I was listening to a talk by Maxwell, and he said, you know, uh, people who doubt that they're selfish, he said, uh, here's the acid test. When you look at a group picture that includes yourself, where does your eye go first? <laughs> right? It, it goes to yourself. And, and then if you don't like that picture of yourself, what's your response? We got to take another one. Forget about everybody else in the picture. Forget about how they might look. You and I beeline to ourselves. We call it the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. And the reality is, is that that's why Jesus comes along and says, if you want to learn to love, get out of yourself, get the focus off yourself, and in every conversation you have, focus on the other person's needs. Whether it's your wife, your husband, your kid, your coworker, the service provider, your dear friend, no matter who, be other-centered. Because why? This is what Jesus did on the cross for us. Do we all understand that? I mean, as I already said, Jesus, I, this is what blows me away about the cross. Jesus could have easily stayed up in heaven, remained a part of the perfect trinity of God that has existed for all of eternity in self-satisfied relationship. Meaning the trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does not need us to be happy. Sorry to pop your bubble. He doesn't need us. God doesn't. He is self-satisfied as a trinity. So why would Jesus come to earth to die a sinner's death and give his life for you and me. You know, I hear people answer that question. They go, well, he wanted us in heaven. Really? Really? I mean, I think he did want us in heaven, but I can tell you that's not the driving thing in that. The reason Jesus did that is very simple. It's because he loves you. And he is focused on you. He is very other-centered in the way that he approaches this humanity that he loves. And he calls us to be the same. Now, we're not done yet. As you then focus on others, God asks you in your love to be crazy sacrificial. And some of you are going, what do you mean by crazy sacrificial? Again, it's the cross. Jesus said, no greater love has a man for his friends than to lay down his life for him. And, and so Jesus shows us in the cross what sacrifice looks like. And then he says, every day, every moment of every day, find opportunities to defer and love those around you and be sacrificial every moment of every day. I remember as a young associate pastor, I was uh, pastoring in Detroit for almost a decade. And it was a church very similar to Scottsdale Bible Church, much smaller, but Bible teaching, passion for the lost, wanting to penetrate the community, you know, wanting to elevate love to its rightful place, that kind of church. And when I got there, it was about 300 people. And when I left after, I was just the associate pastor for nine years, uh, about 1,500 people. So it was a great ride and saw the church grow and, and truly, I think, become a prevailing church in the Detroit area. And, and like happens in growing churches, we added staff and we built buildings and things like that. And, and our budget grew because our people were really generous. And I'll never forget one time in the early days of my time in Detroit, uh, the deacon board voted to buy new chairs. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to some of you, but this was a church that didn't historically have a lot of money. And uh, we were sitting 
not in the worship service, but in every other context, we were sitting on those old folding wooden chairs. Give me a hand raise if you remember those. Some of you do. For those of you young people, you can Google them later. And an and old wooden chair. And, and, and we had like 600 of these things, and, and they were hard on the rear, and they were getting rusty, you know, the hinges and all that. So the deacon board approved buying new chairs, and we bought 600, and this is going to sound wild today, I mean, like you're going, really big deal. We bought 600 stackable chairs with four-inch padding. Baptists love four-inch padding. And, and, and again, stackable chairs were not very vogue. It was a huge uh, expense for us, and we were all so excited to have our new chairs. True story, about, oh, I think it's probably two weeks to a month after we got our new chairs, I got a call in my office one day from Eddie Edwards. Eddie's now with the Lord. Eddie was the head of Joy of Jesus, which is an inner city ministry in Detroit. Just did amazing work in some of the roughest parts of Detroit, kind of like neighborhood ministries here. In fact, Eddie's organization was one of Bush's thousand points of light way back in the day. And Eddie said to me, hey, we're having this huge event outside, so it might rain. But he said, uh, I know that you guys have chairs. Could we borrow a bunch of your chairs? And I said, how many do you need? And he said, how many do you got? And I realized he needed all of our chairs. I remember going to the head of our, our, our building committee, because everything was run by committee in Baptist churches, and I, and I said to him, you know, um, uh, Eddie needs our chairs. Uh, do you think we can lend him our chairs? And I kid you not, the head of the committee looked at me and said, which ones? <laughs> and I could tell he was thinking that he didn't want to lend out our brand new chairs to some inner city ministry that would be using them outside. And I said, well, I said, you know, we got the new ones because the old ones stink and they're kind of hard. And I kid you not, he looked at me and he said, just give him the old ones. And I didn't have much clout back then. Now I'd override it because I'm the head guy. But back then, I, I, I really didn't have clout to do that. But that, that left an, an indelible imprint on the way that I thought about how we function as a church. See, lots of churches do that. As they grow, they add new things. And then the old things, we give away to other people, right? Or lend them. Even when we put all these nice new seats in here, we gave our existing pews to uh, churches on Indian reservations, and they were very grateful and very thankful. But, but here's what I, I, I wonder, <laughs> and you guys are going to think I'm nuts for this, but wouldn't it just be amazing someday? You guys should shock me with this. Wouldn't it be amazing someday if, if we needed something new here, say some really expensive lights or maybe a new air conditioner for the offices or some new furniture for our kids' ministry or a new building for one of our campuses, and that got approved by our Buildings and Facility Council. And wouldn't it be amazing if we then felt led by God to find another church that needed the same thing, and instead of providing it for us, we provided it for them? I, I, again, I, I knew that would be the response. You guys are going, you're thinking about that, aren't you? You're thinking about that right now. I mean, some of you are going, well, if it's an air conditioner, this is Arizona, like we'd be hot. Yeah, and wouldn't it be glorious if we were hot? I, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if you're sitting in my office and you'd be going, Pastor, why is it so stinking hot in here? And I'd say, well, I, I, I need a new air conditioner. We, we gave it to a, a church on the res because they didn't have any air conditioner. And so we don't mind being hot here because we love them over there. And that's what love does. Some of you are going, oh, that's just too radical. I was in an airport recently, 
And uh, I ran into somebody from Scott's Bible I didn't know. It happens quite often, more often than you would think. And I actually love it. People feel shy coming up to me, but I, I love it. I'm in an airport. I'm bored. And, and so I, I love when people come up to me. And this guy comes up to me and introduces himself. And, uh, and, and, and you know, he starts telling me things that I hear, you know, from people. We love you. We love Scott's Bible Church. Da, da, da. And I, I thought, yeah, but I want to know about him. Again, other-centered. So I, I asked him what he was doing in the airport. We were in Ohio. And he tells me a story. He, he's a... Uh, He's a snowbird at, in Arizona here, he and his wife, and uh, that they have a home also in Ohio where he built his business and raised their kids and all of that in northwestern Ohio. And uh, it's a fascinating story. I asked him about his church that he's involved with there because real entrenched in his church. He's been there 20 years. It's a medium-sized church, not a huge demographic where he is. And, and uh, he was telling me how close he is to his pastor. And then he tells me of how their church is going through a really difficult time. And the reason they're going through a difficult time, you guys will get this right away, is that the pastor is looking to you know, retire and he's handing off the baton to his son, which is always dicey. And, uh, and so it, it, you know, he's telling me that you know, it's difficult, but he, he loves his pastor and he loves the son and the son's making changes and you know, he's just going to stay in there and support them as best he can. So I asked him at one point, you know, what do you do to support them? Like, are you on the board? You know, what do you do? And uh, I, I could tell he wanted to tell me a story, but was a little bit shy to. But I, I said, go ahead, tell me this. And he said, well, you know, one of the things that my wife and I uh, did was we prayed about how we could best help this young pastor, his wife, and their little kids to show love to them. And he said, so we had him over for dinner one night, this young couple. And he said, uh, we halfway through the dinner said, you know, we've been praying about how to help you and God seems to impress on our heart to help you with your house. And, and this young couple said, well, okay, that's very kind of you. What are you gonna do to help us with our house? And they said, what we feel led to do is to give you our house. Now, now, now pause on that for a second. A house! <laughs> they, they, they feel led to give their pastor their house. Andy Stanley tells the funniest thing. Stanley, in one of his books, talks about how once in a while he's in a restaurant and somebody will you know, see him there and, and, and pick up the check for him as a way of saying, love you, pastor. And Andy Stanley says, that never happens in the Apple store. You know, and so, uh, right? Like a restaurant, fine, Apple store, no. A house! This guy prays and says, I want to help by giving my house to my pastor's kid who's now going to be pastoring the church. And I probed a little bit further. It was a nice house. It was on a river. It was the house he raised his kids in. This guy's been very successful in business. I didn't ask him the address because I wanted to get a Google shot of this thing. I, I mean, a house. I wanted to hug him right in that moment. I was so moved. And then he told me even further, he's a great business guy. He says, you know, there's tax implications giving an asset of that you know, worth. So he said, we're actually gonna hold on to the, the deed and, and just gift them a certain portion of it every year until it's done so they don't have to pay taxes on it. I thought, wow, he's really thought about this thing. And then I asked the question, some of you thinking, well, where are you going to live? I thought, you don't want to be in Arizona in the summer. Where are you going to live? And he said, well, you know, that's where it kind of gets dicey. We're thinking of building another house, you know, more, more north of us, but, but, but haven't done that yet. I thought, a house. He's giving his pastor a house. In 1987, let me get the date right, there was a movie that came out. Uh, some of you might have seen it called The Untouchables. 
Uh, it was a movie starring Sean Connery and Kevin Costner, and it was a true story with some Hollywood embellishments about Elliot Ness and his band of untouchables as they took down Al Capone in the 1930s. And it's a, actually a very fascinating movie. And at one point toward the end of the movie, one of Elliot Ness's untouchables, which proved not to be untouchable, uh, has been shot up by one of Capone's men, and he's dying, it, played by Sean Connery, who plays a Chicago police department uh, officer. And, uh, and, and, and he's dying there. His body is riddled with bullets. Uh, there had been an ongoing argument uh, through all the movie between Connery and and, uh, and Kevin Costner between Elliot Ness and the Chicago cop of what are you willing to do? What, what are you really willing to do to take down Capone? Because Elliot Ness wanted to play everything by the book and the Chicago cop being kind of street smart said, we got to fight fire with fire. We, we, we got to take him down. And as this cop is laying there dying, some of you have seen the movie. It's a very moving scene because he grabs Elliot Ness by his lapels and pulls himself up and spits out his dying words, and his dying words are, what are you prepared to do? And then he dies. Spoiler alert, uh, Elliot Ness goes on to defeat Al Capone, <laughs> partly because he was prepared to do what it takes. See, I think you and I need to see John 13 in that light. I think Jesus, these are dying words of our Savior here. I mean, he's going to be dead in about 24 hours. The good news is he rises from the dead. Again, spoiler alert. But, but these are some of his last words. And, and in a very real way, he's grabbing you and I by the lapels. And he's saying, what are you prepared to do? Well, we live such a comfortable life here in Scottsdale. I'd like to think that every one of us this week might give some thought as to what sacrifice and other-centered looks like in our world. Every one of you have opportunities this week. Maybe you won't give your house to a pastor, but you have opportunities this week to get out of yourself, focused on others, and in loving like Jesus, ask yourself, how can I sacrifice for their good? How can I go to the cross myself for their good? See, if Christians started to love like this... <laughs> Then we'd experience the third part of Jesus' parallelism, and it's called love's power. Look at, ironically, what Jesus goes on to say after he says, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we need to wrestle with this, gang, because I'm not sure a lot of Christians really believe what Jesus is saying here. I want you to think of all the things Jesus could have said that we could be known for. Let's play this game right now. He could have said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you trumpet your values to them and tell them how they too can be moral. He didn't say that. He didn't say, all people will know that you're my disciples if you become conservative in your politics and vote for the right issues. He didn't say that. He could have said, all people will know that you're my disciples if you argue with them about truth and develop really good apologetics. He didn't say that. 
He didn't say, all people will know that you're my disciples if you get really missional and start a lot of social justice programs. He didn't say, all people will know that you're my disciples. I like this one. And by the way, I made up all these. He says, all people will know you're my disciples if you take over the media and have lots of Christian radio programs and a few cheesy TV stations. He didn't say that. And he didn't say, all people know you my disciples, if you build really big mega churches, complete with great worship, engaging sermons, and lots of user-friendly ministries. He didn't say any of that. Now, let's be really clear. Save for maybe the politics thing that you might disagree with me on, is there anything wrong with any of the things that I just mentioned? No. Let me ask you even further. Does God use those things that I just mentioned to further his kingdom here on earth? Yes, he does. If you don't believe me, well, sorry, he does. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus had a chance to say that they will know that you are my disciples, that they will know who you are and that you are my follower, he didn't mention any of these things. He mentions love. He says the only way that they're going to know who you are is through your love. And so I love how one uh, commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner, who's written a 1,200-page commentary on John, a scholar in his own right, says it. He says the mutually lived out heart love of Christians for one another is the single greatest missionary force in the world. And he's right. That's it more than anything else, gang. Now, one last story and we're done because we have an elder fund offering to go to. One of the ways that I know this is true is because of my study of church history. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but for the first three centuries of the Christian church, after, after these words of Jesus were uttered and the church was off to the races, for the first three centuries, do you guys understand, they had no church buildings, not a one. They were so persecuted, they had to hide out in catacombs or... Maybe better yet, they had a house they could meet in, but it was very uh, kind of uh, quiet and off to the side because the Romans were out to kill them for three centuries. They had no paid pastors because most of them were dirt poor and they couldn't tithe very much. And they read about the widow's might, but they, they, they really were very poor churches. They really couldn't afford pastors. And, and 90% of what they did collect in their tithes, they just gave right to the poor because the needs were so incredibly great. They didn't have a lot of good ministries they, they, they didn't have bulletins to hand out to people when they came into church. They, 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 they didn't have all the things that you and I have today. I mean, for three centuries, 15 generations, this is how the church had to live. And yet, church history tells us that very quickly Christianity grew to the point that it grew into North Africa and then over to Asia Minor and eventually over to Macedonia. By the time of Augustine, it was already over way into what is now modern-day England. It grew east into even Asia and the Oriental cultures. Christianity literally exploded on the scene. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves, how could they do that? I mean, they didn't have any of the things that we have today to propel our faith forward. Here's what they had. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of them, prompting them to love one another. And some of you are saying, no, it's too simple. I'm telling you, there's story after story we have from the first three centuries of the church where a non-Christian would come into that believing community. I mean, they were hiding out and they would just find themselves in it and, and they would be blown away at the kind of love these people had for each other. The Greeks 
knew nothing of this kind of love. The Romans knew nothing of this kind of love. Christians knew how to love. And my point is, it's the same today. Our vision statement for a church, maybe now it will make sense to you, is this, because I wrote it 10 years ago, and that is our vision statement is we want to be a, a community of Christ followers who are known for our unconditional faith in Jesus. I'm sorry, our unwavering faith in Jesus and our unconditional love for each other. Because I can promise you, if people come into this place or encounter you in culture and they feel that, they feel that you trust Jesus with every fiber of your being and that you know how to love, <laughs> there'll be no stopping us. No stopping us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the call that Jesus gives us here today that, at least for me, I never tire of, and that's the call to love. God, one of the reasons I never tire of it is because, if truth be known, I fail so miserably each day at this call. I miss so many opportunities to be other-centered or sacrificial, and God, I apologize for that. And Father, I pray that as we all have a richer understanding now, having gone deep in the words of Jesus here into what love involves, that God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would make us more like Christ. I think of how Lewis said so well that really the goal of discipleship is to become little Christs. And God, in a very real way, we want to emulate our Savior as he knew how to love. So help us to do that, Father. And God, as we do that, may you draw others to yourself. May they know that you are real because of the love they feel from us. God, as we go to our elder fund offering now, we pray that you might be pleased with this and our giving as well. In Jesus' name, amen.